All right, let's return to our study in the Gospel of Luke. We are in chapter 12, so take your Bibles if you would. Let's head back to this great time in the history and ministry of the Lord Jesus. He has been instructing the crowds without stopping. He has been thrilling us, and we've been spellbound, really, at much of what he has said about the human heart and what it reveals when confronted with the truth. On another occasion, Jesus made this statement recorded for us in Matthew 16, verse 27. He said, for the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father and with his angels. It's going to happen. And he will then recompense every man according to his deeds. Been reading sermons by various Puritans and Ebenezer Pemberton was one such Puritan, and in his preaching, he often touched on this very theme, sometimes expounding this particular verse. He had some amazing perspectives on this promise of Jesus Christ, that he is going to come in the glory of his Father and with his angels and recompense every man according to his deeds. The world doesn't think that's going to happen. In one particular sermon, Pastor Pemberton said, no sooner shall the judge descend to this lower world and erect his throne, but they who are in their graves shall be awakened out of the sleep of death. And all the inhabitants of the world will be cited to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. The voice of the archangel, the chief of the heavenly host, shall echo through the wide creation and penetrate into the secret caverns of the earth. And at this mighty sound, the dead shall start out of their dusty beds, and all the descendants of Adam shall be compelled to obey the call. Those who are alive shall be immediately changed and prepared to make their personal appearance at the bar of their judge. Thus, the scriptures say, we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Civil distinctions make a mighty sound among men. And persons of superior wealth and power are admired and applauded like so many deities, but their servile flatteries, hence they are apt to swell with pride upon the account of their elevated circumstances and vainly hope that they shall be treated with deference and respect at the future judgment. Well, they flatter themselves that God will not be strict to mark iniquity in men of their dignity and station, but that he will make some favorable allowances for the excesses and follies which are so common among men of figure and estate in the world. But alas, these are vain imaginations, the preacher said. The sovereign ruler of the world pays no regard to earthly greatness, neither has he any value for those distinctions which are made by birth and estate. The great potentates of the earth who are cried up as gods by deluded mortals are in his sight but contemptible worms of the dust. In that day they will be divested of all their stately ornaments, deprived of the signs of their greatness and power, and stand upon a level with the smallest slave. He then finishes with this. And as none are too great and mighty to be called to an account, so none are too small and contemptible to be taken notice of. They who have made no figure among men but have spent their days in want and obscurity will not be overlooked in this vast assembly, but will be strictly examined whether they have submitted to the wise disposals of providence and improved the talents committed to their trust. Those who are in the morning of their youth 
and in the strength and vigor of their age shall be brought into judgment for their unmindfulness of their great creator and their criminal indulgence of sensual pleasures. Ignorant, uninstructed heathens who have inhabited the wild and desolate corners of the earth shall be called to account for the transgression of the law of nature and the abuse of the divine goodness. And the learned and civilized nations who've been favored with the light of the gospel and early instructed in the will of heaven must answer for their superior advantages and their neglect of the means of grace and salvation, such as will not now approach the throne of divine mercy, but will appear at the bar of inflexible justice. Thus all mankind of every nation and language, of every quality and condition, of every age and sex must be judged in that great day. What a grand and solemn sight this will be to behold all the successive generations of men standing together in their respective orders and waiting for their decisive trial. Jesus has returned to this great theme and it's been in a discussion about coveting, a discussion about greed, a discussion about attachment to this life, a discussion about worry, a discussion about anxiety. A discussion about thinking on the horizontal rather than the vertical. Thinking and being consumed with all that is here in this temporal life rather than thinking about the eternal. That is what Jesus has been discussing. And he talks in this last section about readiness. And notice what he says in verse 40. You also, and that's emphatic, you on your part, be ready. For, he says, the Son of Man is coming. And it's at an hour that you do not expect. In that very hour or period of time, you might feel sure he isn't coming. In that very hour, he will come. Even if you, because of these messages and because of your study of the word of God, are in a state of readiness, living in that state, the coming of Christ will still involve, Jesus says, the element of surprise and shock. He's not saying that faithful disciples will not be watching when he comes. Maybe perhaps because of this study, you have had a new level of interest and, and thought and affection for the coming of Christ and a new level of readiness in the way you live your life. He doesn't mean faithful disciples won't be watching. Only that even for those that even are ready, his sudden arrival, that is to say the specific day and the specific hour, will not be the expected moment. That's why the mention just earlier in verse 39 of a thief. The thief is a common analogy in the New Testament for the unexpected and shocking arrival of Christ. Paul told the small new church plant in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verses 2 to 4. He said, you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief comes in the night. And when they're saying peace and safety Destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, he says, are not in darkness that the day should overtake you like a thief. Even when you're ready, there will be the suddenness of not knowing the day and the hour, but you'll be ready. You're not of the darkness. Peter picked up that same theme in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a loud roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and all of its works will be burned up. 
in the revelation, the prophecy given to John on the island of Patmos. You remember in the study of the churches. Chapter 3, verse 3, remember therefore what you've received and heard and keep it and repent, he says, if therefore you will not wake up, I'll come like a thief and you'll not know at what hour I will come upon you. Sometimes people say, oh, I've got time. I've got time to think about this. I've got time to get ready. I've got time to prepare. Sometimes young people today are so flippant and casual. Well, I'm just not sure if I believe in that. They sort of take on this early pre-adolescent and adolescent sort of skepticism. I'm not really sure I believe that. Listen, you do not know what day and hour he will come. You do not know when you will take your last breath. And ultimately, you do not know that this world and its evil can deceive your mind into continuing to imagine you have time. And you don't. Revelation 16, verse 15. Behold, I'm coming like a thief, Jesus said. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his garments, lest he walk about naked and men see his shame. He's talking about the spiritual shame of being instantly exposed. Jesus said the same thing in the Olivet Discourse. Mount of Olives, he was talking with his 12 disciples and telling them when these things will happen and the signs of the times of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And in Matthew 24, says the same thing. You're not going to know the day nor the hour. You don't know the specific time. There are sort of the last days with certain New Testament signs that are given, but not the day and the hour. That's going to be sudden. Shocking. And even if you're ready, as this passage calls you to be, you still don't know the day and the hour. And just when you might be getting up and heading out to take care of your day and witness to some neighbor or spend time at work and be an influence and Jesus will come. It's not on your mind. Say, Pastor, what does this have to do with with our worrying about what we have or don't have here on earth? Well, as we saw last time, the sin of worry just to trace it, is rooted in the sin of coveting what God hasn't given. It's rooted in the sin of greed. It's unbelief about God's care. And we saw last time, it is worldliness in that it is acting like the world who believes it has to run after all these things on its own because it has no God that would concern himself with our well-being. And so then, last week, we noted that Jesus said, you need to be ready, be dressed in readiness. Why? Because the ultimate cure for being attached to this life inordinately, for worshiping temporal things rather than looking to the eternal, for not considering your soul but only thinking about your earthly life, the remedy, the cure is to live every day in a state of high readiness for Jesus to come. Because it changes the way you live. It changes the way you think about people, about deeds, about what's going on in your life, about trials, about heaven, hell, the meaning of life, morality. It changes everything. When you put the things of this life into perspective, that is to say, in light of the imminent return of Jesus Christ, your focus changes from all things now to the awesome and glorious moment when every soul is called up in front of Christ. Instantly. And so Jesus said, I want you to be ready at any moment. What did that mean? He said, first, be intensely focused. We saw that last time. Let your loins be girded, verse 35. Tie up all the loose ends. Don't let excess drag you down in life. 
tie up all the loose ends, live an intensely focused life, and be fully prepared. Keep your lamps burning. It's the analogy of the oil ready for when the master might come back so you have enough to supply for any time, any schedule, any need, who he brings with him, what he comes back with. You're just waiting, fully prepared. And you're on high alert. You're waiting for the master, verse 36. Why? Because there's such grace when he comes back. When the Lord comes back and you're in a state of readiness, there's such grace. He, he serves his people, the scriptures say. Grace for endurance. He serves his people. And if you endure through the second watch, even the third watch, somebody says, oh, where's the promise of his coming? And you say, trust me, he's coming. Trust his word. Trust his promise. This is the Lord of glory. He cannot lie. I know he's coming. And you're carefully guarded by that truth because if the master had known that someone was coming to break in and steal, he would have prepared. But when a thief comes in, he comes unexpected. Why? Because you're not ready. You're not guarding your mind and your heart. And so we saw that Jesus says there is to be a readiness at any moment, a spiritual readiness. Now, where Jesus takes us next is the duty that we have to stay steady, not just ready for any moment of his return, but steady in every duty as a faithful steward, listen, of every opportunity he's ever given you and will give you. To be in a steady faithfulness to your duty with every opportunity he ever has given you and is going to give you. That is to say a spiritual resource, a spiritual opportunity. Now, it's interesting that Peter is in the crowd and he hears Jesus say what he says in those previous verses. In verse 41, he wants to know if Jesus has been talking exclusively to he and the apostles or does this call of readiness apply broadly to everyone? Notice, Lord, are you addressing this parable to us or to everyone else as well? Now, no doubt at other times, Jesus gave this same instruction, the same command to be ready, and the disciples were the only ones there. That, again, will happen when he preaches the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24 and 25. It's just the disciples on the Mount of Olives. And there were other times when this instruction continued to be a theme in Jesus' teachings to his disciples. And so Peter is saying, look, it's as though he's thinking, hey, there's a crowd around You've, you've said these things to us before as just the 12. I'm wondering, are you, are you narrowing it down to us because of our massive responsibility and stewardship? Or is this a teaching that we're going to pass on to other disciples about their need to be ready? That's why he asks the question. And notice what the Lord says. He doesn't answer it directly, but he goes into some parabolic teaching to talk about readiness and stewardship. Verse 42, the Lord said, who then is the faithful and sensible steward whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. Jesus says here, look, You, if you are in Christ, you are to stand ready. This serves as a warning to unbelievers not to let a moment's gospel message go unheeded, but it is a call to the believer, at least right out of the gate, to be ready so that you don't drift, so that you don't become weak, you don't squander your spiritual privilege, or worse, you're manifested as an apostate. 
You actually drift from all the Jesus talk in your mind and heart today down into almost nothing. You love the world, live for the world, and when someone comes to confront you with the gospel, we find out you never really were of us. You're not saved at all. Totally deceived, uninterested. That's the warning of this passage. Now ask yourself this morning, how much spiritual privilege have I been given? Because at least we know that's initially on Peter's mind. I mean, Peter has been given the keys to the kingdom. He is the one that is going to lead the apostles, the apostolic band. He will pay the ultimate price. He will lead in this early church dynamic. He will preach the first sermon at Pentecost. He has a massive responsibility that he's been given by the Lord. He doesn't even understand it yet. And so that's on his mind. Spiritual privilege, spiritual opportunity. Almost nearly three years with Jesus hearing instruction. What about you? What about the spiritual opportunity and privilege you have been given? That's on Jesus' mind here. And so right out of the gate, he says, after having said, be ready, then he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to maximize every privilege. I want you to maximize every privilege. How does he illustrate this? He says, who then is the faithful and sensible steward. Who is the faithful and the sensible steward? Now here's how we need to think about this. If the Lord has given you spiritual opportunity, spiritual privilege, gospel messages, gospel interest, people in your life, you're not ignorant of the truth. Even if you're sitting here, this, this may be your first time. This is the beginning. This is opportunity, this is a divine appointment, this is privilege. You squander this, God may not give you any more opportunities. You young people who have that growing sort of casual skepticism, I'm not sure I believe that, mom and dad. You need to be careful. God may never give you any more spiritual privilege than your family, and if you go on unbelieving, Satan may deceive your mind. You go out of the home, maybe you don't get another opportunity at all. You don't know. And the Lord could come immediately and will come at an hour and a time and we don't know. And suddenly he shows up. You're not going to be able to scramble together some belief. No, you won't. In fact, it is shocking to read that when the tribulation comes, it is of such severity that it it stops the human heart to read it, let alone those who will experience it. And it even says then that they will harden against the God who is sending all these plagues and shake their fist at him. How could that be? The blind power of Satan. The blinding force of deception. Don't you believe that you have time? And so Jesus, what does he say at the outset here? If you've been given spiritual privilege and opportunity, it is the one who is faithful. It is the root word meaning believing. And here it is used to give the idea of someone who is trustworthy. If you're keeping an outline, trustworthiness is how you maximize every privilege. In the context of a steward of the master's household, the word means that someone is absolutely trustworthy to carry out the tasks given to him. So what does that mean with regard to a servant of the house? Well, in ancient times, if the, if the estate owner was to leave for some period of time, he would hand all of the estate over to someone who was proven in their trustworthiness. What did that mean? That that meant that when they're given spiritual privilege, 
The way to maximize it is to recall that they were taught all the necessary skills to handle the estate. So that is to say, on a spiritual level, if you've been given spiritual privilege and influence as a Christian, you've been given all the necessary tools by which you can become a skilled servant of Christ. Some people sit on the sidelines as if they haven't been given the instruction of the Lord, or some people do not become effective influencers for Christ, even though they've been given great privilege. Why? Because they're lazy or they're fearful. Oh, somebody's not going to like me. But God has given all the necessary tools for life and godliness. He's given all the promises. He's given everything you need to to establish you in every good work. The steward of the household knew that the master gave him all the necessary skills to handle the estate and he was to hone them. Furthermore, he's given every Essential resource for handling the estate, personnel, people, resources, whatever's needed. Well, in the spiritual sense, God has given you his word. He's given you his spirit. You have all the power you need, all the compassion and grace of God you need, all the promise that his providences work together for good. Listen, if you've been given spiritual responsibility as a Christian, and no doubt you have, and spiritual privilege... And you've been given all the necessary tools with which to become a skilled influencer for Christ and all the essential resources in the power of the Spirit and His Word, what are you doing with them? This keeps us from coveting and greed and attachments to this life because we're looking to the eternal. That day when the Master will show up and He needs to find us doing what He gave us to do when He handed the estate to us. Man, beloved, I think about the church, evangelicalism in our culture. So much to answer for. So much privilege. So many gospel messages. So much growth in the early church in this country. So much gospel influence spreading across the plains in the pioneering days. So much truth. So many great preachers. So many faithful pastors family members, parents, grandparents, prayer warriors, many having come over from Europe into this barren land for a new world, and in that new world, they brought the gospel robustly and were even persecuted by by those around them for it. Gospel privilege. I mean, we live in a day when our culture today is looking at even the heritage of our country, let alone the spiritual privileges given through the church of Jesus Christ, and they're just squandering it. I don't care about that. I was born to chew up this life and consume it for myself, and I'll do just that, and when I'm old, I'll say of it what I want to say of it, and that's all there will be to say of it. That's our culture. That's where it's headed. That's the depth to which it plunges. As a Christian, Jesus says, you're not to add to that by squandering your spiritual privilege, but you are to be faithful. All the responsibility for running the estate in a prudent manner have been delineated to us and completely delegated to us as stewards. And here's the the trigger point. In this context, no time frame is given for the master's return. So the steward will have to make decisions all day, every day, with no contingency plan to wait until the master arrives. 
You get up every day with the privileges you've been given and you say to the Lord every day in your heart of hearts, Lord, help me be a trustworthy steward today because you could come back today and it will be an hour I wouldn't know, but I want to be ready and I want to be doing with what you've given me what I'm supposed to be doing. He's left us with the responsibilities because he put us in earnest charge of everything. And notice what Jesus says here in this parable. He says the master has put the steward in charge of things to give them their rations at the proper time. You know what that indicates? That indicates that the livelihood of all the personnel who are an essential part of the estate is in our hands. You know what that means? Your sphere of influence. Your sphere of influence is spiritual opportunity. What are you doing with it? Your sphere of influence is a privilege not to be squandered. How are you handling it? The analogy implies that trustworthy servants of Christ have an influence on those he leaves in their spiritual care. You parents, you grandparents, you great-grandparents, your children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren are your spiritual privilege. What are you doing with it? Did you retire? Did you go into retirement? Did you get a divine AARP card? (laughs) Special discounts? Special dispensation? The Lord not only calls us to be spiritually ready in our own life when he suddenly arrives, but he calls us to make sure we've been careful to build up the spiritual lives of others whom he's asked us to influence. And so will the steward be trustworthy with all that he's been given? Notice he also adds the word wise here. Sensible could be translated. Or we might sometimes use the word prudent. This is the the opposite of this word is, is the word for foolish or squandering or reckless, senseless. No, no, no. This this steward who's found doing what he's supposed to be doing is wise, he's a careful thinker about all that God gives us to do here. It's spiritual prudence. So what would that look like practically? Well, first of all, it has to mean you consider the whole counsel of God, right? You consider the whole counsel of God. What does God say on every issue? What does he say? What's his perspective on every issue? It's got to involve that. I need to know and carefully think about the whole counsel of God. Secondly, on a practical level, I need to be a doer of the word and not merely a hearer, James 1.25 says. I need to be practicing it. Why? Because that's, that's the person that intensely focuses on the law of liberty. Rather than the guy who looks in the mirror and walks away quickly having only glanced at himself. He's the hearer of the word only. He deludes himself because when he sees the image, it's fuzzy, it's hazy, it's general, and he walks away and forgets what he saw. So he can't see where he needs to go. He can't see what he needs to do. He can't see the flaws he needs to work on. He can't see the graces he needs to avail himself of. He can't see any of those things. And so to be, to be wise and prudent spiritually is to consider the practice of your life and think carefully about being a doer of those things. It must also mean that, as Paul told his young disciple Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 
A good soldier of Christ Jesus doesn't entangle himself in the affairs of everyday life that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. And that verse means a lot to anyone who's been in the military. And and this always brings back to my mind those days when I first went in, you know. You went down to boot camp and your life was entangled in civilian affairs. And everyone could tell because when you got down to the place where they were going to conduct this boot camp and do this transformation, if they could, of your life, you looked different than everyone else. You had your street clothes on and I had fairly long hair back then. And, um, and you know, we had a swagger. Kind of came in on the bus, you know. It was, and it was two in the morning when they fed us breakfast and it was like, okay, we're coming down to boot camp. I, I'm sure the tough stuff will start at some point, but everything's looking pretty good. And then it all happened. <laughs> in an instant, they came onto the bus and started spitting in our face as they screamed at us all kinds of things you don't want me to repeat. And they frightened us out of our minds And we stood there nervous and shaking and these men who seemed larger than life were were all the same. They looked the same. They sounded the same and they were orderly and strict and they had weapons. And I was just a kid and thought I was all that. And I was entangled in civilian affairs. What were they doing? They were disentangling me. Why? In order that I may please that guy that's screaming at me, and I don't care what goes on around me. In fact, that's exactly what happened. That one night, I tell my family this all the time, we stood at attention for over an hour, and uh, you know we were all frightened, so I was staring at the wall. And you know how when you stare at something, everything else disappears? You remember that? Everything else disappeared, including the guys next to me. I didn't care about them. The guy next to me here tightened his knees and started to pass out. He went down and hit his head on the concrete. I didn't move. Tough. I sure hope he's okay, but probably ought to get back in line. Other guys were helping him out. They got screamed at. He got screamed at. Nobody cared. Nobody took him to the hospital for the crack in his, in his skin. Not at all. What was happening My mind had to change. I had to become prudent about what was important. Why? Because in a war, I had to be disentangled from all that comfort so that I would look the same, sound the same, and we could achieve some objectives. That has to be what Jesus is calling for here. If you're going to be a wise steward of the spiritual opportunities, you must have the objectives of the master on your mind and only of the master. In order that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. If you're a Christian, you're not enlisted for some earthly obligation. You have earthly obligations, but they're all delegated under the authority of Christ. What are you doing about that opportunity, that stewardship? It also has to mean practically that we consider every soul we influence. James chapter 3 verse 1 says, Don't let any of you, don't let many of you rather become teachers, for such will be a stricter judgment for them. Oh, everybody wants to opinionize today. Everybody just opinions, opinions, opinions all over the place. Ah, we teach everyone. We teach the world. The moment you have an internet and an Instagram account, you can teach the world. 
Really? You're going to be held accountable for every one of those stewardship moments? Surely Jesus means when he says, be ready and be a good steward doing what the master wants you to do, is that you would consider what the master wants you to take care of, which are souls. Careful about your influence. It's like Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3, you guys are, you know, we're God's building and God's field and you're over here working on your own garden, your secret garden that has nothing to do with Christ. We're God's edifice, God's building, and you're over here building your own little monument to your own works, and you're not building on the foundation that was laid by Christ and then put upon by the apostles and then on down the line. You're not careful how you build. It's going to be tested one day. What is your estate spiritually going to look like? When Jesus shows up, do you have a whole lot of other gardens that have Everything about you in them planted and nurtured and nothing about God's garden planted and nurtured. All kinds of edifices all over your property. Nothing on the foundation that Christ laid when he brought you to himself. It's got to mean that, that you're careful how you build. And it has to mean practically that that you think about edifying other people with the gifts God has given you by the power of the Spirit, right? First, First Peter 4.10, as each one has been given a grace gift from the Lord, employ it as good stewards. There it is. Good stewards of the manifold grace of God. You say, Pastor, I don't even know what that looks like in my life. Well, you all have, only have to roll up your sleeves, go serve God's people, the people that God brings in your path, in the life and body work of the church, roll up your sleeves, start serving, and ask the Holy Spirit to show you how you uniquely edify the people in your sphere of influence and show the fruit of it, and he will. He promises to do that. And it'll be probably broader and wider and more amazing and multicolored than you even imagined. Surely being wise must mean practically that because that's a spiritual privilege we've been given. We can't squander that. Steady in every duty, Jesus says. Maximizing every privilege. That means trustworthy and wise. What is behind it? What's the motivation? Look at verse 43. Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. I'll tell you what motivates us. Eternal rewards offered to Christ for his glory. The eternal rewards of the kingdom that we get to enjoy and benefit from. You say, really? We're supposed to work for rewards of this kind? Yes. Absolutely, we're to be motivated by that. The Lord will take us from just mere steward to managing the entire estate. What does that mean? We reign with him. We reign with him in the kingdom. And it it does seem to indicate in scripture that how you handled your spiritual privilege here will be commensurate to some degree with the amount of privilege and, and work that you do in the kingdom. The scriptures make that clear when The parable of the talents is told. There seems to be spiritual reward commensurate with the use and faithfulness of spiritual privilege when the Lord comes. Everybody receives the inheritance. Absolutely. No one will be disappointed. We will all to some degree here 
welcome, good and faithful servant. Right. Because there is a modicum of faithfulness in every Christian as the spirit works. But if you, all your Christian life, just resist, 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 you stagnate, spiritual privilege comes and goes, you do nothing with it. And I'll tell you this, you won't have any assurance in this life that you really went to the grave in Christ. And if you do believe the promise that you're saved and you are redeemed, you're still going to face the Lord and he's going to say, hey, I gave you this privilege and this privilege and this privilege and this privilege and I wanted this much work done with this and this much work done with this. And what you did was sat down and got lazy and neglectful and you worshiped yourself in ways you should never have. And the spirit... My spirit was contending with you and chastening you, but you would not come around. You say, is that going to happen? Read 1 Corinthians 3. You can, your works are going to be tested by, by fire, and that which was not useful will not rise to the surface as a refined jewel and a refined precious metal given to Christ for his honor. It will burn up like hay, grass, dry grass be ashes could have been something and so Jesus says I want you to be a faithful steward but then he he turns this to a stern warning about squandered opportunity a stern warning about squandered opportunity and this parable just unfolds very simply it has one main point Notice verse 45, but if that slave says in his heart, my master will be a long time in coming. And he begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, and eat and drink and get drunk. In other words, he's squandering the estate and the souls within it. The master of that slave will come on a day when he doesn't expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. Wow. Strong language from the Lord. You're going to be punished. You're going to face the worst of it. You say, I won't do that. I won't be the kind who says, oh, the master's going to be a long time. I'm just going to consume his estate for my own ends. Yeah, well, what about you who know the Lord's will? You know the gospel. You know it's been preached to you over and over again. And yet, Because you love your life here, you're so attached to your life here, you do nothing with those gospel opportunities. Notice verse 47, and that slave who knew his master's will and didn't get ready or act in accord with his will, he's going to receive many lashes. There is is punishment for the one who knows the gospel and knows he must believe it, hears it over and over again and does nothing with it. You could broadly apply this to Christians. Some commentators do that. I suppose it's just as true that if you are a Christian who squanders privilege and spiritual opportunity, you're going to be in the you're you're in the kingdom. But it may very well be that you lived a life mostly chastened, Hebrews twelve, mostly with limbs being put out of joint because you just wouldn't get in line. Maybe you're like Corinth, or worse, maybe you're like Samson. You know the worst of Israel's deliverers because he was carnal. Maybe that's how you live the Christian life. Still useful in the end, but but not as useful as you could have been. You say, well, I didn't grow up with the gospel and I didn't grow up in church and I I wasn't given spiritual privilege of any kind. I was totally ignorant. Surely, surely when I meet Jesus Christ, he's going to 
to know that I was never given anything of spiritual privilege. Really? Did you know that Romans 2, 14 and 15 says that even the Gentile world, having had the fabric of moral rightness and wrongness built into every human being, they have a conscience, and their conscience either confirms them or it condemns them based upon how they behave in moral life in its basics? Even Gentiles, when they stand before God, will not get any leniency, Romans 2 says. They won't get any leniency for ignorance. Jesus, notice, says the same thing here, verse 48. And the one who did not know the will of his master and committed deeds worthy of flogging will receive but few. So you have the first kind squanders everything. Maybe if you want an example to just pop into your mind, the worst example of all is Judas. Right? Judas... Not because he lived the worst kind of sinful existence. He didn't. He lived a religious existence. And not because he was some unusually cruel dictator who slaughtered entire cultures like we've had in our human history. Not because he was a leader of terrorists or some ugly, crime-ridden heart, a serial murderer. No, no, no. Judas is the most wicked of all human beings because he was more freely exposed to the most lavish privileges of grace. And he squandered all of it. He sat there, the skeptic. He sat there consumed with what he wanted. He sat there attached to the world. He sat there coveting. He sat there greedy. He sat there worrying and anxious what what he wasn't able to get. And he sat there personally selected by the Lord to work alongside him. He saw firsthand, close, up close, every display of miracles, heard every perfectly delivered and flawless sermon given by Jesus, personally taught by him day to day, watched every deed and practice of Jesus' life, never saw Jesus sin, never heard him say anything worthy of accusation. He personally was treated with grace and compassion by the Lord of glory himself for nearly three years. He always had a perfect supply of resources. He was never without ready comfort. He was always a recipient of the Lord's kind-hearted responses and brotherly love. Jesus paid personal attention to him in friendship. Jesus modeled what it meant in front of his disciples to live for God. He is the epitome of wasted knowledge and opportunity and privilege. And that's the first thing Jesus mentions here, the peril of wasted knowledge. The second he mentions is the folly of waiting casually. Don't wait casually. You do not know what Satan is going to do to blind your mind. You do not know what's going to happen. You walk out those doors. You don't know what's going to happen as Satan is, is scheming right now because you have been a skeptic in your heart. Did you know, by the way, there is no neutral position If you're sitting there saying, well, I'm just not sure. I just don't know. I have things I want to accomplish. I have things I want to do. I'm not sure that I'm going to add Jesus till later. Or or maybe it just isn't convincing enough. If that's you sitting there right now, you are not in a neutral position. If you are not for him, you are against him. How do you know that he won't leave you in that state? You're commanded to believe. Skeptic is an unbeliever who's waiting casually at best. 
And then he just ties it up with the danger of ignoring any amount of truth. Any amount of truth. Oh, you didn't know the will of the master, but you committed deeds worthy of flogging. They're worthy of flogging, even if you don't, didn't know his will. Why? Because you didn't seek out the light you had. Whatever light you do have in your conscience, you didn't seek it out. You squandered it, loved the world, wanted what you wanted. You know what happens to the unfaithful steward? Everything he had gets taken away. In the analogy of the parable, it is a warning that if you are given spiritual privilege and you squander it, you get no more eventually. And you have none in the judgment. If you've been entrusted much, wow, how much you will answer for if you squander it. Why is this a cure for anxiety? Listen, now you can see, can't you? Do not plunge yourself into cares of this life. Jesus wants you ready and steady. He wants you faithful and prudent, caring about what he cares about, knowing the whole counsel of God so that your heart is settled on his promises. You're doing his bidding. Forget what goes on around you. Use it for his honor, but do not live for it. If you're living for it, beloved, you not only have no practical cure for what you worry about, but it will consume you. The saddest part about what Jesus says here is that he implies that the master is going to show up and it's going to be a day and an hour when no one knows and it's going to be shocking and when he shows up, there will be no second chances. What he finds you doing when he arrives is the sign of who you are. It tells the story of who you really are. Are you his or are you not? We have so much privilege, don't we? How could we ever quantify what we have enjoyed in this country? Sure, the country is going south morally and culturally, sure. But you still assemble with God's people, and the truth is still at your fingertips. In fact, it used to be at your fingertips in print. It's now at your fingertips in this. In this. It staggers me that every time we do uh, something here, some teaching, it gets put on here as a link, and then it gets sent, and then we even have little sites we can go to and see how many people downloaded it. And you know what? We read those numbers, and we don't get frightened. That is tragic. We should read those numbers and it should sober us. Wow. That many people. That's a privilege. That's a privilege. If people out there are starving for just a little something of God's word and we have it every week in our discipleship and in our body life and in those that God has placed here and in our own study and in our own resources at our fingertips and we squander that, how much will we answer for? And maybe you're not able to access the power of the spirit of God that lives within you at times because you have squandered what little you've been given and God doesn't want to put any more stewardship in your hands right now because you continue to say, no, 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 I'm too interested in this life. Beloved, don't do that. Be ready, be steady. Be found doing what 
your master wants you to do. Bow with me. Lord, thank you for the grace of this teaching from the Lord Jesus. Thank you that it is a warning. It calls the believer to good stewardship. It calls the unbeliever to carefully consider their their tendency to squander all these privileges at whatever level they come. Lord, we're to be faithful stewards. We're to be faithful and we're painfully aware of the the weaknesses that plague our stewardship. Help us, strengthen us, strengthen your people with ears to hear these things and make the changes that your spirit calls us to. And Lord, for the skeptic, young and old, in our midst, I pray this frightens them. I pray that they no longer stay in a state of unbelief as if it's a casual, neutral position. Nothing casual about it. And you will come in a day and hour when they don't expect it and they will have been held in their unbelief if you arrive on that day and they are still skeptics. And you have the sovereign right to do that because you give the truth over and over and over again and the heart just says, convince me, prove it. Oh God, help us. May this be the hour and the time of salvation and may no one wait. But become your servant, the faithful one, the trustworthy one, the wise one. Help us help each other in this body to strengthen each other in our walk. We ask this humbly. We ask this with open hearts. We ask this that you might teach us, that we might be instructed as your students. We ask this for our protection spiritually. We, we petition you to help us so that we aren't blinded, blindsided. We honor you for what you've taught us in your word. Keep us from these sins of being attached to temporal life. Get our minds on the right things, we pray for your glory. Amen.